Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm Dr. Blake Williamson. In this episode, my co-host, Dr. Daryl White, and I invited our good friend, Dr. Carl Stonecipher, to talk about how he manages to make time for himself and his family outside of his professional obligations. And we tackle the age-old question, are you living to work or are you working to live? Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm your host, Blake Williamson, and I have my co-host with me, the man, the myth, the legend, D. White. Daryl, this is our third show uh, of our of our shows. Uh, this is our, our last show. We've come a long way. We've talked about getting into private practice after being in academics. We've talked about industry consulting and when to step away and how much to do. What did what'd you come up with for your third episode? Well, you know, Blake, I think that it's really, really important to have more than ophthalmology in your life. And when we were chatting with Lisa and Maria, we talked, you and I, about how important it is to center things around your family and how it's important to know that you can make that choice and that it is a choice. And if you don't do that, it's okay. You know, other people haven't done that, but they've chosen to really make the practice or their, their career the center. Um, and that was, that was a big deal thing. But a nice segue to what we're going to talk about today comes from that chat that we had with, with Lisa, um, Lisa Fulner and Maria Scott. And that is, are you working to live or living to work? Is everything that you do, everything that you are wrapped up in being an ophthalmologist? Or are you doing things at work so that you can do things that bring you a different type of joy. And uh, with that, I'd, I'd like to introduce our, our guests. And before I do that, I've had a blast, Blake. So if they'll let you get, like have redos, like if I can come on and do this again. I don't know if I'd have as much fun doing it with anybody but you, but if I could do it with you again, that, that'd be that'd be killer. Um, but having said that, I, I wanna introduce our, our guest and our guest is somebody who is uh, one of the best known anterior segment surgeons in the world for all of the right reasons. This is a guy who helped develop some of the most important technologies that, that we do all the time. He was one of the pioneers of laser vision correction. Um, he and I were one of the first 50 docs who did this. And he's been on the cutting edge of every refractive technology that's happened since the late 1980s and the early 1990s. On top of that, our guest may very well be the most interesting man in ophthalmology. So let me introduce your friend and mine, Carl Stonecipher, cataract and refractive surgeon from North Carolina. Carl, welcome aboard, man. What an introduction. I don't know. I don't know if I can live up to that, but I. I'm going to do the best I can tonight. Uh, I, you know, 
ophthalmology is a passion, but life is a bigger passion. And so I think, you know, asking, you know, how do we have fun outside of work is, is a huge, huge thing. And, and, and I'm one of those that work to live, just like you made the comment. Yeah. You know, Blake and I have to have a, you know, we've been reaching out kind of through the airwaves to the, the younger uh, generation. And, and as you know, Blake is, hasn't quite crested that 40 level yet. So he's still officially one of the, uh, the youngins. And it's been fun as one of the old farts to, you know, kind of pretend that I was mentoring him along here. But uh, so what do you, what do you think? We, we got the, the ophthalmologist most interesting man on here, Blake, what, what do you think? Yeah. You know, it's funny when you just ask that question, are you, are you living to work or working to live? Um, you know, I had this thing in my brain where I almost like felt bad admitting that I'm at the stage where I'm trying to, you know, work to live. You know, like when you said that, I was like, well, of course you should live to work because you're obsessed with ophthalmology and you love it. It's the most important thing in your life. But then I, that was like my initial reaction. But then I was like, well, no, uh, really, you know, I, I do love ophthalmology. It is my favorite thing. But more and more, I find myself trying to find ways to enjoy myself but I felt bad like even thinking that I almost feel like we're kind of wired as, as physicians and surgeons kind of not to, or to feel guilty uh, about like wanting to go have fun you know and that's what's great about Carl is you know seven years ago when I started uh, you know I, I would see Carl speak at you know Caribbean Eye and his other meetings I'm like god that guy just seems like a blast you know and it turns out he spent time in New Orleans which makes sense you know now it, it all kind of registered when I realized he had some two-lane blood in him um you know we all kind of uh we all kind of uh, have some similarities but but uh he always looked like he was having a good time and even in training you kind of gravitate towards those people right like you want to you want to kind of spend more time and do more surgery with those attendings that are you know, just look like they're having more fun and like life isn't just about work. So Carl's a great representation of that. Hey, Carl, tell me, I, my, my sense is that it's always been this way for you, but, um, you know, tell me, go back as far as, 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 as you can. Did you ever not know how important it was to be working to live, not living to work? Because it seems to me that this is the gift that you that you always had. But was there a time when maybe you had to sit yourself down and say, nah, this is this is not the way it's supposed to be? Well, work ethic started with my father. And as you guys know, my dad played baseball. So he didn't he he wasn't like real excited about paying for my way through college or medical school. So I can still remember going down to Dooney Blumenthal and at Liberty national bank in oklahoma city and i was like why why am i going down to liberty national bank with you today dad and he said because you're going to get a loan i know no i don't I, why, why would i need a loan he said because you got to pay for your college and your med school and so don't get me wrong just like everybody coming out we all have bills we all have stuff we owe money for and and there's a new laser or there's a new faco or there's an, always something new and like we were laughing earlier about, you know, what, what the cost of living is, whether that's fun or, or work. And it seems like just about the time you get a device paid off, what? It's time to get a new one, right? That one, they don't service anymore. That one doesn't work anymore. But it really started probably with my mom. My mom worked for several different uh, doctors. She worked for neurologists and psychiatrists and, and general surgeons. And I go hang out with those people. And, and I, I kind of realized that, that, you know, back in the 70s, you know, as a kid, a lot of those guys weren't having fun. 
And like, I thought I was going to be a thoracic surgeon at the first point. And I was spending time with these famous thoracic surgeons like Cooley and DeBakey. And don't get me wrong, they were doing tons of surgery, like all the three of us do, but they were not having fun. Their necks hurt, their backs hurt, their, you know, their lives were in disarray. And so I think that, that what I learned early on was, you know, by example, my uncle taught me, he was a cardiologist, you know, if you treat everybody like family, then you're never going to have a problem. Now you're going to have complications, but if you can look at that person that you've operated on and you can say, hey, you know, um, I had a complication. This is what I would have done if you're my mother, my brother, my father, my sister, then I think you're, you're all good. So you've got a fun way work and play. Now, all of us have done a ton of surgery. You know, I had to add it up the other day because someone had me present and I've done over 120,000 cases. And that's not laser, that's cataract, that's LASIK. You know, I've done like 80,000 LASIK and 40,000 cataracts. So, so I work, but at the same time, you can have fun while you work as well. So the, the staff, we're constantly doing stupid stuff in the OR because everybody's sitting there thinking, what? I'm about to go blind. And, and you know, am I looking at the light and am I Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? And so I think that you've got to have an outside, you know, activity. And you and I were talking earlier and you, you said one or two. I think you need more than one or two because as all ophthalmologists do is what? We all obsess, whether it's obsess on how fast we can do a cataract or, you know, what we can do. I think if you have one activity, then you obsess over that. I had one of my good friends who won't be mentioned. He quit playing golf. That was his only activity. That I had to quit. And I said, why? He said, because I was hitting a thousand golf balls a day. I was thinking I got to get to a two. I'm never going to get to a two. And he just kept obsessing over that one activity. And then last but not least, you know, my good buddy Uday Devgan took a whole year off. Okay. Took a whole year off because he felt like he was missing his kids growing up. So he spent a whole year with his kids. So you got to look at the good examples too. And you guys are good examples as well. I mean, I was just with Blake and his family and we had fun and what's the what's the what's the thing called Blake the Jeep is it a Jeep what is it or a blazer what is it's it a, it's a Bronco dude Come Bronco on. That, those, are, those are fighting words man you know it's a Bronco we don't ride I, know. <laughs> I figured I'd start you early and then you know Daryl I know you've got kids and grandkids and all that sort of stuff so if if you wake up one day and you look around and there's nobody around you you got a problem and so I think it started off with Jim Rousey, you know, the guy that I did my fellowship with. He always would say to me, if you give it to them, then they can't steal it, right? So you've called me, both of you have called me and said, okay, how would you do this, this, and this? And I'm going to tell you what I think is the best option that I may have tried. And I'll tell you when I failed, I, I don't have a problem with that because we're all going to fail. And if we don't fail, we never learn. And I always say, you know, <laughs> experience means you've done it wrong before. <laughs> well, so going way back, Carl, um, you know, we all had really interesting upbringings. We all had uh, very different upbringings. We, we come from very different backgrounds, although we all had a similar place. Um, was there anything from your, your early years when you were growing up that was the obvious first thing that you did outside of the practice? What was the first thing you said? Oh, you know, I'm done with my fellowship. I'm done with residency. I'm done with medical school. I've got some time. Man, I'm so happy to get back to... I started playing golf when I was like five and I, I started water skiing when I was eight. And so I didn't start drinking until I was a little older. I can't quite say that because you guys know. I, I know my children, I my children might see this. I can never say when I started drinking because my children, my mother's still alive. 
yeah. although she knows because she was yeah. there the first time it became obvious but still um, yeah i get that <laughs> yeah so i i think that you know you know the wine collections and the wine sharing that started early on too uh, but I think for the most part, uh, my first job, I mean, that I really enjoyed and remember was working on a ranch. Uh, I started working on a ranch when I was 12. Uh, literally, I, I made a dollar and 12 cents an hour starting out. I mean, it's kind of hard to forget that. Uh, I thought I was living the dream because I was making all that money. You know, I'd work 12 hours on a tractor or whatever. And then um, I put together a sprinkler company. A friend of mine and I started a sprinkler company. So I was always a bit entrepreneurial, um, had a lemonade stand when I was younger, but like you say, you know, you don't really remember, I don't know about you guys, I remember cases, but I just don't really remember living during medical school and residency. I mean, I remember having fun, don't get me wrong, but, you know, medical school and residency, are, you, I was that guy that, you know, give me the next case, I'll go to the ER, I don't care, and I think that if I can teach anybody a lesson that's young, is you only have eight years to get this down pat. So when you're in medical school, work. When you're in residency, go do that open globe, do all that sort of stuff. Because when you get out and you're looking to your right, you're looking to your left, there ain't nobody there. And it's just you. And so if you've done it before, then, then it's going to be so much more comfortable. And I, and I don't mean don't do something that you're not capable of doing, but I think that your training time is meant to work. And then like you say, you know, when I first got out in practice, yeah, I was looking around, you know, like Blake will probably say, I mean, you're, you're looking, okay, you know, what am I doing for college? You know, am I saving up money for my kids? And I think that, that they are important in terms of those terms, and you're going to do that. But at the same time, when you're getting out in the first point, first thing you want to do is all your kids want to do is spend time with you. They don't care if you're at Disney World. They don't care if you're in Milan, like we're going to be in two weeks. They don't care where you're gonna be. Now, maybe later in life, they, they wanna go do that stuff, but early on, they just wanna hang out with mom and dad. And I think that that, find, find first something that you and your kids enjoy. And I think that's, that's a, a huge thing. And we happen to be boaters. So we had a, I had a ski boat start when I was young. I bought a ski boat when I was 16 or we at it with my brother. And um, we basically kept care of it and, and worked on it. and ski behind it. And I took that to New Orleans and cook it to Louisiana. So you and I were talking about earlier, a boat that you have in the backyard. I had the 1976 Evan Rude with an 85 on the back and we had plenty of fun. It doesn't have to be the $330,000 Paragon. I mean, you could have fun with anything like a, a, an inner tube and a boat. Uh, and, and I spent, I, I've got, I just looked at my boat today. I got 999 hours on it. And, and I'm like, it's time maybe to get a new boat. But, you know, you've had so much fun on that boat. You kind of want to, you don't want to get, get, it's like a car that you love. You may not want to get rid of it so soon. So it, we're still having fun with that one. So for those of, for those of you guys don't know, um, both uh, Carl and Blake are excellent water skiers and this whole new wake surfing thing. I've seen videos of them and I've seen both of them doing the wake surfing thing. Carl with a grandchild or or a nephew or a niece on it's the board. My, it's my it. office staff's son. So uh, I take my and, office and, out. They all go yeah. and surf with me. Yeah. And and Blake with with his child on on it. So you guys clearly are both doing exactly that. Um I I, I love 
love the pictures and and love the videos of of those things, Blake. I mean, you you're really good at it. The, the best thing about it, though, Daryl, is it's so it's so low intensity on your legs and your back. I've had two back surgeries. Dad's had five back surgeries from playing football at LSU. And so I had to come up with things that I can do that's not going to break my back because I'm hunched over doing surgery all day. So first thing I do is I need to lose weight, honestly. But but I'm starting to do more yoga and I'm starting to do more um, low intensity activities uh, like wake surfing. That's the best part about it. You're like going 10 miles per hour. You feel like you're going 100 miles per hour. And when you fall, it's not like skiing or, or, or wakeboarding where it hurts. So so, you know, I've had I have three three kids under age seven. So I have to be cognizant of the activities I'm doing you know, for them, you know, so it's, it's, uh, that's one challenging thing about having too much fun is like, you're, you're like, it's not just me, I have to think about, it's all of my employees and the other doctors and, and, and all of, you know, my, my family. So I'm trying to work that into my week. I'm wondering, Carl, do you, do you, as busy as you are, have you had to like carve out certain parts of your week that's designated for certain things? Like for me on Mondays at lunch, I have my yoga instructor that comes to my surgery center and we do yoga basically in the lunchroom and on Wednesday nights, I have my radio show, which you've been to, you know, and it's carved out. And that's what I said. So those are my little areas of fun that I have carved into my week or else I'll never do them. You know, do you, do you have to kind of plant that with your schedule and make it an automated thing? Yeah. One, one of the things that I tell you, I joined plenty of gyms and, and I think that you gloss over it, but it is so huge that you take care of yourself. You got to get sleep. Yes. We all went with four hours of sleep. When was six hours of sleep? Maybe if we're out with Trattler, we may have two hours of sleep. You know, but I mean, for the most part, sleep is important. And so you got to figure out how to be able to, to, to unwind and relax. Because a lot of people don't do that. They just go home at night and fall asleep in the bed and don't have time, you know, to relax. Yoga for me, I, I used to go to the gym. I essentially converted. When I got into my new house, I looked at my wife and I said, this is your house. I just want one room that's mine. And so I just took that. It's not a it's not a big room. It's it's got all my workout stuff in it. The things that I do today are Peloton. Uh, I'm I'm yoga. I am meditating. I uh, get on a bike. Uh, and now I'm doing more fun things. Like I ride my bike into work. Uh, now you can die doing that in North Carolina because they all honk at you when you're on the road. But I think for the most part, um, you got to figure out a way. So that you don't wake up, and and believe me, I've done it wrong. I, I I can tell you, there were times when I was doing, you know, at, at one point in the heyday of LASIK, I was doing five six hundred cases a month, but my back hurt and my neck hurt, and and I wouldn't do anything. And then I I I finally decided, you know, this isn't fun. So I got to figure out a way to make it fun. Now whether that's get another partner or whether that's figure out how to how to divide and conquer all that and get more organized. But at the same time, Blake, you're 100% right. There's got to be me time. And me time can be golf time. It can be fishing time. And, and, and But at the same time, there's got to be family time, you know, if you're so inclined. I mean, if you're married, you know, or you have a partner or whatever, find time to spend you know, with those individuals that you love or you're going to wake up one day and they're going to be gone. And you and I have seen that so many times in, in you know, medicine in general. It's not It's not just unique to ophthalmology, you know, you've got to enjoy, you know, those those roads you share. And I'm not not trying to bash anybody that, that splits up somewhere down the road. I'm just saying that usually it's it's a part that that you guys grew apart because you weren't spending time together. We had this incredible confluence of all of that in our lives here in the White family. 
um, from about, uh, I'm going to say maybe, maybe 2009 or 2010 till about 2017, 2018, when literally all five of the members of the White family were very, very involved in CrossFit. My boys owned, my boys owned a CrossFit gym. I was the lead programmer for the workouts in the gym. My wife ran the CrossFit kids program. Both of the boys were the trainers. And my daughter, who was the only one who didn't live in town, joined a CrossFit gym in Bluffton, South Carolina. And it was wonderful, not only because we were all super fit. I mean, I, I was stronger and more fit than I was when I was a college football player. But we all had something that we could talk about. We had a touchstone that we could come back around to. And boy, oh boy, I was in a hurry at the end of the day to get out of the office, not because I was done with doing ophthalmology. I, I really love ophthalmology. But I knew that the minute I left that office, I was in the car and I was going to Comet CrossFit um, or CrossFit Bingo, where the boys were going to be ready. And I was either going to coach for my sons or I was going to do a workout and my sons were going to coach me. And in the next room over, my bride, my, my best friend, my better 95% was going to be coaching up the kids. And that was really a wonderful thing because our collective family avocation was all basically the same thing. We did that one thing together. So we had that super outside of the practice bonding experience. Um, and, and, you know, who knows if this is associated, but I'm two weeks out from another hip replacement. I think that's probably the college football that did it, not the CrossFit, but uh, I'm dying to get back to CrossFit. I haven't been able to do it for a couple of years because my, my hips have failed me spectacularly, but I'm dying to get back to it in part because it's so enjoyable and in part because unlike my garage gym and your room, Carl, um, and your trainer coming to you, Blake, so it's all a very you know small thing that we're doing right now. I miss the gym, man. I miss the CrossFit box. I, I miss that um, the, the shared experience outside, which is kind of like our experiences in ophthalmology. You know, we get to share so many things, but I'm sharing that avocation as well. Right. And on those those points, you brought up two great points. You know, maybe, you know, you, you iron out some time to go do Little League baseball. I was terrible at baseball. And the reason I was terrible at baseball is nobody knew how blind I was. And I was really nearsighted and, and nobody realized that till I was about 12. And I, I have great parents. I mean, they would have taken me to the doctor. I just never complained. And so, you know, I, I was just, I always tell the story of myself. My, my little league coach basically said to my dad, if somebody's going to tell you, it might as well be me, but your son's really bad at baseball. And I said, I said, you know, I, I'm trying out here. And so anyway, my mom said that wasn't going to happen. They finally realized I was really nearsighted and just couldn't see the baseball. Once I got glasses, I could see. But to my point, I went and coached baseball. I knew nothing about baseball. I didn't play baseball in college. I didn't play. I mean, I didn't really even do a lot of the sports my dad did just because, you know, he was so good at it. I played like rugby and soccer and he didn't know the rules too. But, you know, Blake, you mentioned earlier, you know, involve your staff. So I've seen you do tons of stuff with your staff. So I'm always taking my staff out on the boat or we're going out on adventures or, or excursions and, and, and we include the family. So what we did, you, you talk about having fun and sharing, you know, we have a nice old 1909 golf course, Donna Ross, just up the street. 
and I brought the entire staff out. We basically, it wasn't about a golf tournament. It was about how can the staff have fun? So we had an A player and then a not so A player because those people had never played before. So if Blake and you were the A players, you got three shots on a par five, two shots on a par four and one shot on a par three. And then the rest of it was played by the other team members. And, and by the end of it, everybody was having fun. And then we had a big barbecue in the backyard. I didn't cook any gumbo. I probably should have had some crawfish and gumbo, but, but we had barbecue in the backyard and, and the kids came over. It wasn't just an adult affair because, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I spend more time at work than I do probably with my kids and my family. But at the same time, if we all know each other, then, then, you know, Lynn's always coming up to work and seeing what she can do, you know, to help out the gang when we're all stressed out. And so I think it's important to, to share all that with your staff too, because you spend so much time with them. Yeah. I love, I love watching uh, when you guys uh, got dressed up for Halloween in uh, crazy ass costumes and went and visited all your referring docs. I thought that was so cool. I love how you involved your staff. One thing, one thing that we've done mixing fun with staff um, is around uh, Christmas time. And I have to give a shout out to uh, Jeff Whitsett in Houston, Texas. He taught me this. But for, for Christmas, instead of giving you know, my little core team, I have a core team of about six gals that go with me to all my locations. Um, and, and, and so for my core team, instead of giving them each a, a Christmas gift or a gift card or whatever, uh, I take them to the mall and I give, give them each a hundred bucks. And I say, we meet at the food court and I say, you got 30 minutes to spend this. Uh, but it's got to be on yourself. You can't spend it on anybody else. And I'll time them, and they just jet off running to spend the money as quickly as they can. And the first one that the first one that comes back gets another hundred dollar cash. So we do that, and then I take them to Ruth Chris's for for a nice lunch uh, immediately following the, the the shopping spree, basically. And uh, Whitset taught me that, and that's been our our tradition for Christmas time uh, ever since. So it's fun to kind of involve your staff in games like that. I'm gonna steal that one. I, I tell you the the Halloween thing. It's so funny now. We have I have 495 doctors that refer into me. Now, obviously, you can't go visit that many. So we visit the top 10. And everybody strives to be in the top 10 for us to go visit. And we're all, I mean, everybody, you know, thinks of what the theme is going to be. We're always fighting. We've already got our theme for this year. I can't announce that because I always bring the pictures out. But and then afterwards, we go visit these top 10 referring docs. And we go have a great lunch somewhere and just sit around and people, my favorite one, we, we went as uh, Guns and Roses one year. And so we're sitting there in some country bumpkin, you know, sidekick here in North Carolina and everybody walks over and they're like, are you guys playing later tonight? And we're like, uh, yeah, we're the cover band. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's, it's just good fun stuff. And the, and the staff, they love that stuff, you know, and, and you don't, again, going back to everybody looks at it oh, I got to spend a million or a gazillion dollars to do that. You don't have to spend a lot of money. And, and $400, dollars $600 $600 goes such a long way. I went, when we did, we just did this recently, Daryl, to your point. I did bring this up, so don't get me in trouble. One of my staff members looked at me who will remain nameless and said, I think I weigh more than my husband. And I said, you know, look, that's an HR nightmare. I said, I can't do anything. But I said, if we want to make it fun, I said, we can do the 10 pound challenge. So we don't, and you don't have to participate. That was the funniest thing I've ever done. And when I went, when I got done, I got everybody, you know, wins trophies and I got everybody wins medals. So everybody got something for participating. We all joined Weight Watchers. And that was like, I always say like $15 a person, but what we're now have done since then, instead of having 
the gnarly, nasty stuff that we usually eat in the in the little back room. We now have helpful, you know, more good items, and that goes back to Blake's comment. You, you can include the staff. We used to do uh, in the '90s. We used to have a big room where the staff worked out. So we brought in a personal trainer and did that. But you know, people stopped doing that, especially with COVID. You can't, you know, do that kind of thing anymore. So we've we've had a nice nice run here, and I want to end up on one of the favorite things that that you and I have done together, Carl. And I and, and I have a feeling, Blake, that we're going to be able to to co-opt you into this. Um, and this is not the first thing you and I did together, Carl. And I don't know if you remember, but the first time you and I ever really met and really knew each other, we were skiing at the old Ayers meeting in Aspen. And my son was there. And my son actually won... The, the slalom. He beat you and he beat, um, who, who's the guy from Westchester, Pennsylvania? Um, All I remember is Trattler and, and Adam usually end up at the top of the leaderboard. Danny won, which was a riot and caused all kinds of trouble because he wasn't really there. But, but that's not the thing that I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is wine. And I want to finish with wine because for those of you who don't know, Carl, so so Blake's got a glass of wine. I finished mine. Blake, what are you drinking? So I'm drinking a um, a Pinot from uh, uh, the Nickel and Nickel Winery. They make Farniente. So they have a Pinot that they do that's affordable. It's like a fifty dollar bottle. It's not crazy, but it's a delicious Pinot. You know, for half the price of what you'd get for a Nickel and Nickel. Um, it's great. All right. So so I just finished my first glass of El Molino Pinot which is ridiculous. And so I'm not even going to pretend it's not, uh, which was my new discovery from our anniversary trip last year. And um, so E-L, new word, M-O-L-I-N-O. It's worth looking for. It's it's absolutely fabulous. They were on the cover of the Wine Spectator this month, which makes me feel really cool because I discovered them first. But so this is one of the things I started off by saying, um, partly off camera, but one of the things that I love so much about Carl, the human being, is that not only is he the most interesting man in ophthalmology, and not only does he have this plethora of, that's right, I use plethora in an ophthalmology podcast, just want to point that out. Not only does he have a plethora of activities outside of ophthalmology, but Carl is the most generous man I have, a generous person. I've ever met in our professional world. He shares all these wonderful things that he does. Carl never shows up without not a glass of wine, a case of wine. He has a wine suitcase and he takes it everywhere. We've been at meetings that were sponsored by industry partners for dinner and Carl shows up with a case of wine. No one wants to drink their drack because Carl's showing up with his stuff. Carl had the keynote uh, speech at the Ohio Ophthalmology Society, and uh, uh, Alice Epitropoulos hosted the two of us the night before. And Carl shows up with a case of wine. And it's a case of stuff that, A, nobody else can get. And B, you've been trying to get for a decade. And Carl just wheels in and says, hey, guess what I have for you? So, Carl, my question is, twofold. Number one, when did you really start drinking wine and why? And number two, when did you realize what a gift it was to share? Because it's really a, a terrific gift of who you are, not just the wine. It's a terrific gift of Carl Stonecipher when you do that. 
to my uncle. So my my family's a bit different. I'm I'm Hungarian, Armenian, German, Irish, Cherokee, Indian, uh, and I'm missing one. But I, I'm a bit of a mutt, and and that's the best one one at the pound that you can find. So my mom's father always had wine on the table. So we had a little bottle. You lift it up, and it would sing "How Dry I Am." So it always had wine in it. Now, when we were little, it was diluted, obviously. They didn't give us full-strength wine, but everybody drank wine because these people were from the old country, and the water wasn't any good. So the wine was the only safe thing. My uncle is a wine, uh, he is a weed expert, and, and not he doesn't have an apothecary, I promise. He, he is a weed scientist who basically worked at the University of California at Davis. So I learned about, you know, the snouted flocks, I mean, the snouted-nosed beetle and the phloxera and all that sort of stuff on his early age. So I really learned that that wine for me was a vegetable early on. It was not really there to get drunk. I was never a Boone's farmer guy or never of that sort. But I mean, I don't denigrate those people that started there. I mean, you know, if you look at Parker, he'll even say he started on the bad stuff, which was cold duck. So I think that that in terms of I started collecting wine based on birth years uh, and we just did. I'll, I'll send you a copy of it. It was a painting the whole family did together. So my daughter participated, my wife participated, I participated, and it's it's called a fine wine uh, is one you like. And so I learned that early on when I was younger at a wine tasting in Monterey, and it was just me and some other lady. And I said, you know, it's just you and me, and I want to learn all I can about wine. And that's the first thing she said to me is a fine wine is one you like. And from then on, she said, but it's no fun <laughs> drinking it alone. So you gotta have somebody to drink wine with. Now, don't get me wrong. We all come home, we have a glass of wine, but boy, how many times can you remember a wine that you drank that you really liked and you were with friends? Or it was your daughter's wedding, or it was your best friend's, you know, whatever, you know, birthday party, or you guys were drinking wine, you know, on top of the mountain after a great run. So I think that for me, the wine is the experience, but it's also the wine. So I think that if you can leave with something that nobody's had before. And I don't do that, you know, to be ostentatious. I do that because I really like to share. I mean, I, it's kind of like little league baseball. I was talking about earlier. Yeah. You love to see the kids smile. That's why I love to teach. I, I bet we taught, I don't know, 30, 40 people to wake surf this summer. Cause you love that little smile as the kids get up. We just were with Raj this, this last weekend with his kids on the boat. And when they get up, boy, it's that sense of accomplishment. Well, the same thing goes with wine. You have a great wine, you look at each other and you're like, dude, that was really a nice experience. And so for me, wine is, is a vegetable. It's part of the meal. Uh, it's part of the experience. And if you don't have anybody to share it with, uh, you're just drinking alone. Daryl, and I think that, I think that my only uh, thing I'd add to that is if it's ever in doubt whether to drink it or not, drink it. A lot of people will hold on to it. Like, don't, don't drink it super late when you've already had too much to drink. But if you can drive a car safely, if you're not, if you're doing okay, but it crosses your mind, should we drink this? The answer is yes. My, my, one, of my, one of my best buds, he and his wife struggled forever to have a baby. Uh, they finally had a baby after all, you know, in vitro and all that. And his dad showed up to, to the hospital. They were celebrating, you know, he and his dad, he had a big bottle of Opus One wine and he gave it to his son, my buddy, my buddy, uh, Bo. And, uh, and he said, uh, he's like, oh man, it's amazing. He's like, dad, should we drink it? And, and he was like, uh, he's like, uh, I don't know. And Bo was like, I feel bad. I don't want to drink it, dad. I'll save it for a better occasion. And his dad was like, absolutely not. Let's drink this thing. 
and they opened that bottle of Opus One. They drank it. He had, in the in the hospital room, and his dad passed away a week later. Imagine that. Imagine if they did not drink that bottle of wine. So so my buddy Bo, he's the one that taught me. If it ever crosses your mind, should we drink it? Drink the wine. And and one thing you can say wine labels. So so I have wine labels from. It's kind of like photographs. I got wine labels, but I make people. You guys have both done it. Sign bottles. Uh, I make my mom every time she she's with us. She does. My mother does not drink at all. Never has drank in her entire life. Uh, my dad obviously made up for. You know, he is he was roommates with Billy Martin, so so they typically had fun together. But I think that that you know if you can have them sign the labels, they're almost like you can pull them out later and say, God, do you remember when we had our first kid? Or do you remember at Megan's wedding when we did that? And so for me, you know, the labels are important too. And now they got these little sticky things. You can just peel them off. So I can always remember who I had uh, that fine glass of wine with. And, and, you know, and sharing, if you don't share your education, you don't share your energy, if you don't share your love, you know, you're just wasting time. Well, listen, I could tell wine stories all night long um, and, and have, but I can't think of a better way for us to bring this to a close. That was absolutely lovely, Carl. Um, so, Blake, thank you again for uh, letting me come and play in your sandbox. And, Carl, uh, I, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to have you as a friend. And thank you for coming and, and spending my uh uh, spending this time with us and sharing, uh, you know, the stuff that you do. Just one more indication that you're not only the most interesting man in, in all of ophthalmology, but you you may be the most generous ophthalmologist that any of us know. Thank you, Blake. Well, thank you for having me, and I'll try and stay interesting for you. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thank you to my colleagues, Dr. Daryl White and Dr. Carl Stonesniper. Until next time, this is Dr. Blake Williamson signing off.